Welcome, everyone. This is the Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson and Ed Marvelous Vidal. They're both on the line right now, and I they, they believe that they're experiencing religious freedom, so we're going to talk about that today. And they also like to quarantine because none of them really want to go to work because they know they just are radio guys. So how are you, gentlemen? Go ahead. Take over. This is WSQF 94.5. Yours truly, Mac. Good evening, everybody. Go ahead, make your day. Start talking because Ed is, you know, Ed's shy. He's not Hello, gonna... folks. This is Ed Vidal. I'm going to be commenting on Adam's uh, observations. And also it's, that. This quarantine and uh, its historical legacy. So why don't you fire away, Adam? So, what I propose to do, and I want to start by doing a shout out to all the uh, first responders and the medical professionals and everyone that's out there on the. Uh, on the battlefield, if you will, so saving lives and responding to that. that and taking hydrochloroquine. Yeah, maybe some of them. I, I saw that article today. The president may be taking it already. Yeah, he, to, he, he told us today at 4.30 that he's doing what the, the first responders are doing. So right. they're monitoring his heart because there could be complications. But the, 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 the goal, at least on my end, is to combine a couple different streams together. So back in February... We did a post on statutes and stories about the history of quarantine. We also did a post about the history of uh, the first inoculation laws, the first vaccination laws, which date back to the 1600s. So that's what we did a couple months ago, and that was in February timeframe. So now the conversation is going to switch over to freedom of religion. And just to track the trajectory of how we've done this show, we spent a lot of time talking about the Bill of Rights. Then we started talking about the First Amendment. So now we're going to combine those together. So we're going to combine together religious freedom, and we're going to combine together this issue and the, the conflict, really, which is, uh, I think, towards the end of the hour, we can really delve into that. And as everybody knows, I focus on the history. I leave it to Ed and to Manny to express their opinions on how you apply that history today. Uh, so I try to stay away from today's history. But uh, I'm inviting folks. There are multiple ways to participate in these conversations. One way is to listen to us live, which is what we're doing. Another way is to go to the WSQF website and listen to the podcast. And uh, they've got uh, many, many episodes that are there, and I'm hopeful that uh, some of the older episodes will also be put on the podcast on WSQF. And there's also my website, which is the Statutes and Stories website, and there you can follow along with us. So I'm going to throw out to everybody before we delve into the subject matter, if you go to statutesandstories.com, and there's no space there, it's all one word, statutesandstories.com, you can see where I am, and I'm on the link if you go to the blog. And there are various ways to use the website. But if you go to the blog and you scroll down to the bottom of the blog, you'll find 
the history of religious freedom in America. And I'm going to start on page eight of that PowerPoint because we've got a lot to be thankful for in America. And, uh, you know, we're one of the early countries that uh, allows religious freedom. That's why we can have some of these discussions today and maybe disagree with each other, which we'll see. So that's the, the PowerPoint on page eight. And I'm going to throw out some of the topics that we'll cover. So uh, in particular, I want to talk about something we never talked about before, which is the flushing remonstrance. And I'm going to unfairly ask the two of you if you want to give an idea where flushing is. In uh, Shea Stadium. It's in Queens. <laughs> it's in Queens. So we're going to talk about, uh, all the way, this is in the 1600s, Flushing became very famous for a very important decision that was made, really a heroic decision by some of the Protestants in Flushing standing up for Quakers, standing for the principle of religious freedom. So we're going to talk about the Flushing Remonstrance. We're going to talk about some of the early colonies and where these ideas of religious freedom started coming from. And then we'll also go into some of the quarantine. So I'm on page eight. And wait, 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 wait. You, uh, let's get, uh, I'm, I'm at your website, and I'm at the menu. Now, which, which should I hit? Okay, so I'm going gonna, gonna to back up. So from the menu, we go to the menu, and then from the menu, go to the blog. Okay. And then from the blog, and I'm doing it myself now, it was in February. So scroll down the blog to find, and I'm glad you okay. asked. Under Constitution's cover letter, yes. So keep scrolling down, and it may you may have to go to the second page. I don't know, it's February, so let's see, the First Amendment. You may yeah, have to go to the 1813, an act to encourage vaccination. Yep, keep, go, hit the two below that. Go all the way to the bottom, go to the second page. Quarantine, and 1796. Go, go even further down. Hit the number two. Go to History of Religious Freedom in America, which is on the second listing of yep, law. Got it. Got it. His, got history it. of Religious Freedom. All right. And great. From there, this is a, a PowerPoint that I put together for a particular or, uh, organization. And I'm focusing on religious freedom in a certain area, so we can skip through some of the earlier pieces mm -hmm. and go, go to page eight. And page eight okay. of that PowerPoint has a nice picture of William Penn, and I want to talk about the middle colonies and compare the middle colonies with the, the northern colonies, because there was an important difference. And when we celebrate Thanksgiving, and we learn about in school, and I was flipping through my daughter's uh, history books, and so when you look at the early history of the, the first northern colonies, this is Massachusetts Bay, mm -hmm. uh, you had, and it's sort of interesting, that the irony that those that were escaping persecution, this is the pilgrims or the Puritans. Yes. They tended they, to be very intolerant, right? They, at the irony, exactly. So they were intolerant, meaning that uh, because they were expelled in many cases from England, uh, they wanted to do it their way, and that was their prerogative when they had their own colonies. But they were less mm -hmm. tolerant of all the religious sects or religious groups, even though these are all Protestant groups. So just to mention some of the names. So you had, uh, and this is not in the PowerPoint so, so much, but I'm going to refer to some of the other groups and some of the other colonies. So you had Massachusetts Bay, which is one of the first, you know, this is in the early 1600s, right, the pilgrims. Uh, but then where, where did these other northern colonies come from? And the quick answer is if you go to Rhode Island, for example, this is a Roger Williams is basically banished from Massachusetts Bay. Mm -hmm. He establishes his own colony. So Rhode Island becomes a colony where um, they were. I think they were, they were Baptists. And I think the New Englanders eventually became to be known as Congregational. Because yeah, congregations were, you know, the powers with the congregation to pick everything. And then I think Williams was a Baptist. He may have been. differences are very small. I don't know for sure. I know that yep. Williams was a minister. I don't know if yep. which particular. Yeah, yep. they kicked him out. 
Yep, same idea, by the way, with Thomas Hooker. So Thomas mm-hmm. Hooker started in Connecticut because he wasn't banished from Massachusetts, but uh, you know he wanted to be more free with regard to his differences, which may have been very minor, and that was the origin of Connecticut. So again, you've got folks leaving Massachusetts Bay so they could uh, be more tolerant, not necessarily of others, but uh, you know to, to do uh, their, their religious practices uh, independently of Massachusetts. Uh, and then, by the way, New Hampshire is yet an ill right. We led dissenters, again, from Massachusetts, 1638, so that's the origin of New Hampshire. So the, the northern colonies uh, you know, are sort of spawning off from Massachusetts. And let, let's talk real quickly, and this is now on page 8, to, uh, to go to Philadelphia and to Pennsylvania. So William Penn, and this is another example of religious groups in Europe fleeing freedom to come to America. And the Quakers, and that's the background for William Penn, his father was owed a lot of money by the King of England, and that's going to be the dog in the background to this. My wife will take care of the dog. But, uh, what? Did you say, uh, is that your wife in the background? Is that what you said? I, I, I said, oh. my, there's some barking. So it's just a, oh, remember, I'm a divorcee. I merely hear barking, and I think it was like an ex-wife or something. Okay, sorry. No, 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 no I forgot. No. I forgot. So you're saying that William Penn was owed money by the King of England? So the William Penn's father, I believe, okay. was owed money. So it was a way paying for that debt. He asked for land. So he can start his own colony, and this is primarily for Quakers. And let me talk real quickly about what I respect a lot about all these religions, but the Quakers in particular, uh, they believe that every individual, and I am no, by no means a religious expert, but they had a, an inner light, if you will, and that inner light would lead anybody to salvation. And in fact, we talk about different churches. In their mind, church services were not necessary since everyone was equal under God's sight. Uh, so for, for them, yeah. you know, salvation could come individually. It did not need to come through an organization. So it's easier for them not to have to do services. But yeah. the, the point here is the, the Philadelphia Quakers were some of the earliest abolitionists in, right. uh, in the colonies. And, uh, for example, Betsy Ross is a Philadelphia Quaker. Uh, she designed the American flag, and she was a, a, a strong abolitionist. I mean, just out, not just like like uh, others, but she really was very fiery in, in, in proposing that. So that's good. Yep. The Quakers supported a lot of social movements. Uh, that's mm-hmm. absolutely right. When it it's fun, it's funny about bullshit. the Quakers that they support the social movements, like Adam's saying, but at the same time, they were kind of uh, agnostic behaviorally in terms of uh, institutional church. I find that really odd. Mm-hmm. Many kids, they were pacifists, and that's been one of the names right. of Philadelphia. It comes from the city of brotherly, brotherly love. They dress plainly, and that's a similarity with some of the other you know, religions in that area. It, it, yeah, they're often also conscientious objectors. If you look at uh, boards, sometimes they would, do, they would do that. And because yeah. everyone was equal in their mind, mm-hmm. they were also, and I'll, I'll be careful with some of the terminology, but uh, women's rights, they, they yeah. wanted everyone to be treated equally. But the, the point is that Pennsylvania was established as a colony to allow religious freedom, similar to Rhode Island. And it became a haven for all sorts of religious groups, including Jews. In fact, some of the first synagogues uh, were in uh, Rhode Island. And we'll talk maybe on if we, later on if we have time about uh, a, fair, a famous letter that Washington wrote to the Toro Synagogue in Rhode Island. And uh, you know, the, the Quakers, and we've mentioned the Northern Knights, that Philadelphia became the largest city. So uh, at the time of the yellow fever epidemic, we're going back a couple months, time of the yellow fever epidemic, 50,000 people lived in Philadelphia, and about 5,000 of them. That's 10% of the population of the city was, was wiped out by that yellow fever epidemic. And what year was that? So that was in the late the early 1790s. And then it came back. It didn't just uh, show up once. It kept coming back. So Philadelphia 
they, we, we talked about that, I believe, one night, mm -hmm. that uh, Washington and Hamilton made the decision that uh, we don't want Congress meeting here. And the question, going back to that conversation, was should the president tell Congress to leave or just advise and request? And that was ultimately the decision that the president mm -hmm. suggested and consulted with Congress, and they got out of town. I think they moved to Germantown, which wasn't too far away from, mm -hmm. from Philadelphia. Um, so long story short, what's the point? The point is that you've got these uh, northern and the middle colonies, and some are better when it comes to religious freedoms. But what about making it official? So uh, I'm on, on page 8, but we're skipping ahead now to page 9. And let's talk about South Carolina real quickly. And listeners of this show are familiar with John Locke. John Locke was very important for some of the Enlightenment theories and uh, John Locke's ideas, many of them on natural rights, are recognized in the Bill of Rights. So Jefferson borrows from John Locke, and we can talk about that also. But the John Locke was asked in England to help those who were going to charter South Carolina to draw up their, what's called their constitution, and their name for it was the Fundamental Constitutions of, Car of the Carolinas. So John Locke draws this up in the 1660s, late 1660s, and what I like about the Fundamental Constitutions of South Carolina is this is in, in, in law, in writing, recognizing as the founding charter of a colony. I'll read some of it to you. If anyone's reading, you can follow along page, you know what the numbers are wrong, but page 8 or page 9, that, uh, let's see, Article 97, a very detailed document, says protection for Jews, heathens, and other dissenters. So open arms. They were allowing various religions in South Carolina. Article 102, no person of any other church or profession shall disturb or molest any religious assembly. So that's recognizing that if you've got a church that's meeting, no person from any other church or any other religious group should molest or disturb any religious assembly. So that's protecting religious rights of expression. And uh, here I'm going to point out that Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, once he saw what was going on with South Carolina, what John Locke had written, there's a great quote. Voltaire says in French, but here's the English translation, cast your eyes over the other hemisphere, referring to America, behold Carolina, of which the wise Locke was the legislator. So to have a wise, you know, enlightenment thinker write the South Carolina fundamental charters or fundamental constitutions was a wonderful thing. And I will also now skip over to talk about uh, the, the the Dutch and New York, because we have to talk about New York. I'm a New Yorker. I know both of you guys have spent time in New York in one capacity or another. So New York was established as a Dutch colony, and um, you know the, the Dutch, before the English really came to ascendancy, the Dutch were, were leaders in commerce, and uh, they came up with it's called the secret sauce for a while. And what the Dutch realized is that toleration, when you had these religious wars in the 1600s in Europe, with Protestants fighting Catholics and uh, different religious sects, that, you know, uh, not necessarily agreeing with, with one another, the Dutch realized that there were advantages when it comes to trade, making money, and uh, stability, right? And economics requires some degree of, uh, we can talk about that also, stability. Some of the, the thinkers that came out uh, of Holland and the Netherlands appreciated that. So I'm going to try to read to you. Uh, some of the innovations coming out of, of the Dutch successes, uh, Dutch success. So here is the hallmark of Dutch success, some would argue, was religious freedom and freedom of conscience. And we can talk about what the difference is, freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. So this was enshrined in the de facto, it was not written, but it was the de facto constitution of 1579. So this is really the Middle Ages, the Dutch understood, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, they understood that, uh, let's see, that no one shall be prosecuted or persecuted or investigated because of their religion. So this is in the late 1500s. The Dutch are saying, we're going to protect people. Uh, you know, if they want to be refugees and come to Holland with money, we'll have, be happy to take them. So that declaration, the Declaration of 
that the fact of the fact of Constitution 1579 was a watershed in human history. And it was issued at the time, as we said, of religious strife in Europe when intolerance was an official policy in England. So a lot of the Jews uh, that were kicked out of Spain and Portugal wound up in uh, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and those other Dutch Antwerp, which was part of that. Uh, for example, Baruch Espinoza, who was a, a Jewish kind of uh, uh, heretic, was uh, in, that, in that Dutch community of Jews that had, had left Spain uh, and Portugal. And then later, when the Jews were allowed back into England by Oliver Cromwell in 1656, they came and they applied to come back in from uh, the Low Countries, the Netherlands. So, yeah, those, those countries had a good track record of religious toleration and having different dissenters. Um, they weren't totally tolerant. The Dutch were probably more. In fact, the pilgrims came to America from Holland because Holland had more toleration than England. They effectively fled England, had right. they hold over in Holland, and it was from yeah. Holland that a lot of people don't realize that, that the pilgrims yeah. came uh, to finally come to America to make their own colonies. Yep. Yeah. So, so I'm going to tie together now toleration by the Dutch, which is called Northern Europe, uh, and how does that relate to the pilgrims? So the Dutch understood the importance of religious freedom because uh, they had it in Holland. So when the Dutch settled New York, um, the issue of the Flushing Remonstrance, and this is going to be 1657, so we're talking less than 100 years after that Dutch constitution, mm -hmm. uh, you had a situation where some Quakers were traveling in Flushing. So this is in the area outside of New York City. Uh, Flushing is in Queens, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. the, the Quakers were being... Uh, uh, and, and this is a name that people will remember from New York history, but uh, let's see, the name that's going to come up is Peter Stuyvesant. And there are some streets, and people may know Stuyvesant was the governor general. He had different names for it, but he was in charge of, of Dutch New York until the British took it over. And he did not like, even though in Holland they were pretty tolerant, as he ran New York, he was not as tolerant as he might have otherwise been, and he did not like the Quakers because he might have considered the Quakers to be a threat to his control, and then that's another conversation we can have. So the issue that came up was that, uh, let's see, he started making a prohibition on uh, Quakers attending services or preaching in his colony because he was able to control it under a, you know, a pretty uh, tight fist. And, uh, well, was it, wasn't New York uh, basically a corporation? It wasn't a, an actual state where people voted for... By the Dutch Indian Company, Indies Company, right? yeah, Dutch Indies Company, but they were very tolerant. In fact, he wrote to them about whether he should let in some Jews that were fleeing Brazil, and they wrote him back and told him, "Yes, let him in." But but what I'm talking about is the elections. There were never elections. They just self-appointed no, their officers yeah, and the, the governor. Yeah, the governor was in essence the president of there the. There was no legislature that I could that I can remember there. Just a bunch of right. attorneys, right? That's just it. Stuyvesant was in control. His it's job was to make money. It was a yeah. business. It was a business. The Dutch, yeah. Now, he Ed, I want you to business. check out uh, while Adam is discussing, I want you to manually put in the uh, live stream, wsqfradio.com, and I'm asking the audience to do the same because if you had an old link, apparently the old link is what's not working. I'm getting some texts now, and they tell me that if you manually okay. put in wsqfradio.com manually, then save that link. Th those that bad office back office link apparently works. Mm -hmm. So the live stream is working at wsqfradio.com. Great. So check it out. Continue adding. 
And I think it is working, man, because I think I hear it. All right, so, yep, I hear you. So let me turn that off. Very cool. So we're, we're setting up this conflict that's going to arise. So Peter Stuyvesant controls New York. He wants to make money, although the Dutch in Holland are fairly tolerant. He does not necessarily want to follow that policy because he views the Quakers as a threat to his control of the New York area. So what ends up happening is about 30 residents of this small settlement, because back then everything was small, so the small settlement in Flushing requested an exemption to a Quaker worship ban that he put in place. So Stuyvesant puts in place a very strict requirement that you're not allowed to have Quakers, uh, and they can't have, uh, I forgot what the specific number was, but he didn't want more than a certain number of people meeting together with Quakers. He doesn't want the Quaker religion to spring, or the um, Society of Friends is another name for the religion. And to their credit, and this is a heroic story, 30 members of this community in Flushing write what's referred to as the Flushing Remonstrance. And today, when we say remonstrance, what the heck is that? But it's basically a petition where this 30 group, 30 people in Flushing, a little town in the middle of nowhere back then, uh, write a petition to Stuyvesant, and they say that we disagree with this. And they refer to the, the Constitution, which is only in Europe, which protects religious toleration. Let me read to some, to some of what this remonstrance says. It's really important, and it's worthwhile to understand that they are not themselves Quakers. So you have Protestants, who happen to be Dutch, standing up for a principle when doing so may incur the wrath, and did, of the governor of New York. So let me read to you a little bit from the Flushing Remonstrance. So on October 10th of 1645, in Flushing, Queens, they requested liberty of conscience according to the custom and practice of Holland, without molestation or disturbance from any magistrate or ecclesiastical minister. And excuse me, more of the specific language so I can uh, get my notes together. But uh, and I will find that before the end of the hour. Stuyvesant was not happy. And what Stuyvesant does is he arrests. So John Brown was one of the one of the folks that was meeting. He arrests John Brown, who was a farmer, for holding these illegal meetings. Brown was in, Brown was banished from the colony. It's not B-R-O-N-E, it's B-O-W-N-E, so Bound was uh, banished from the colony. What is what is Bound do? He travels back to Holland, and he says, we're being prosecuted, and I'm not even a Quaker, by Stuyvesant. So he goes back to Amsterdam, and he pleads on, he's not a Quaker, he pleads on behalf of the Quakers, and he wins his case. He convinces the Dutch West India Company, which is what you guys were mentioning earlier, that the Quakerism, even though some would consider it an abominable religion, is nevertheless uh, should be allowed, because that's what the Holland is allowing in, in Europe, and they overrule Stuyvesant in 1663 and order him to, quote, allow everyone to have their own religious beliefs. So once that establishment or once that precedent is set that Holland is sending back the orders that Stuyvesant has to allow religious toleration, uh, this is the Flushing Remonstrance that you now established that all the religious groups can come into New York and uh, be free from religious persecution. So other things I want to point out, that not only did these heroes stand up and stand on principle, right, uh, but they're doing it for another group that they're not a member of that group, and uh, that articulates this important principle that uh, you know, applies today, and we're thankful that it's enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. So there are beautiful sentiments, that I want to see if I can find them so I can read to you before the end of the hour, uh, but that's the important flushing remonstrance, and uh, here it is. Okay, so, and some of this, if you look at the language, and if anyone Googles it, this is old spelling, and uh, today we write English a little bit differently. But I'm going to read a little bit from the uh, Flushing Remonstrance. Um, okay, so it can be religious arguments were made about how Jews, Turks, and Egyptians, right, 
uh, you know, should be free to practice religion, and ended with a declaration that any infringement of the town charter would not be tolerated. So they're not just saying, please let people, they're saying, we're not going to allow you, this is uh, Iverson, to, uh, to discriminate against religious minorities. So this is an important uh, principle that was set, and now some of the other colonies will eventually copy it. So let's go back to the PowerPoint on pages 8 and 9. And we talked about South Carolina, but let's also talk about how religious some of the colonies were. So on page 10, I give examples, and Statutes and Stories does this all the time. We let you see old laws, and you can read through the old laws. So here, 1782, I, I picked a law, this is in Massachusetts, which was kind of strict, and we've mentioned in the past, blue laws and laws which uh, restrict the use of alcohol and other restrictions. But uh, here in 1782, this is after the United States after we break away from England in 1776. So Massachusetts in 1782 is making it a crime where you can be put in prison for blasphemy. Right? And I think we may have mentioned before that uh, what about John Adams? These are folks who are strong believers in freedom of speech and in you know, religious freedom and other kinds of freedom. So I'm saying it's ironic if you go to the website that John Adams and Sam Adams and John Hancock Right, who stood for the, the freedoms of the spirit of 76, uh, would allow in Massachusetts, their home state or their home colony at one point, you know, laws that uh, restrict and punish people for disagreeing or blaspheming. So, uh, again, you get this tension between some of the northern states and uh, some of the middle states. Um, what else I wanted to point out to you is, let's go into some of the fundamental American laws. So we talked about some of the different states, but when do we start getting on a national level laws protecting freedom of religion? And I'm on page 11, and we're going to talk about the Declaration of Independence. So everybody knows who wrote the Declaration of Independence. It's primarily Jefferson. It's also a little bit uh, Franklin and Adams. You know what the audience never asks? Who that letter, that declaration was intended for? No one ever asked that. And I have the answer. I want to know if you two know. Who did the writers of the Declaration of Independence, who did they write this declaration for or to? George III. Say it again? King George III. No. Adam? I, I have to agree. So it's the... You both the, are two yeah. Mickey uh, Mouse ambulance chasing attorneys because the layman knows the answer. And the Declaration of Independence was addressed to Spain and France to have them join them in the revolution. That, that is a good point in saying we're explaining to the nations of the world why we're doing this. That's a good point. Yeah, the, the only and two nations really that could help them. Jeez, right. guys, that's it. You guys are well, too- That's a good point, and you're right. The, the language, especially in the preamble, says a consideration for the... Um, requires that you give an explanation for why you're doing this. Yes, and it right. was to... Ad- that's a good point. To get them to join... Manny, you have internal genius. You must be a Quaker. <laughs> Right, so, so Manny, there are several purposes of the Declaration, right? So copies of it get sent back to the different 13 colonies. Uh, you're pointing out that there were international ramifications, and we hadn't so much started engaging in active, there were, there were some skirmishes, but the full hostilities uh, hadn't uh, completely broken out yet. But you're right, we want to get France, we want to get Spain, we need to get allies. But uh, I got another, I got another tidbit yeah. for you. And here's another one that I read just recently, and is as a result of Adam's last show. Who was the founder, framer, who suggested that the U.S. currency be mimicked after the Spanish silver dollar? Hamilton? No. Adam, come on. You're the source of why I research. I'm going to go with uh, one of the Morrises. Yes. Robert Morris. 
No, Grovener. Grovener Morris. How about them apples? Okay, that's where I learned the wonderful vision of Adam. Since I don't want to be an attorney, but I want to be smarter than both of them, I do my own work to see if I can stump you guys. So that's all I got to say. Continue with your 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 legal. All right, I'm impressed. Okay, go ahead. Continue. Quarantine has brought out some learning. Quarantine can be a good thing. No, no, it was was a stroke. It it affected the the cruddy part of my brain and emphasized the brilliant side of my brain. Good. All right. All right. Continue. So, Manny, we're on page 11 of the PowerPoint on the website, statutesandstories.com, and we're going to quote from the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to say it slowly because it's magical language, right? These are things that, that the kids learn in school, and they're important to remember. So we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this is 1776. We're telling to Britain that we're declaring our independence, and the magic language or the, the, the very important natural rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So although it does not, in that phrase, refer to freedom of religion, because it's recognizing that liberty and happiness and life are inalienable rights, that includes, is the argument, the right to freedom of religion. And I'll also point out that though, when you look at the very end of the Declaration, this is if you keep going through the PowerPoint presentation, and that people know the story about how John Hancock has the biggest signature on there, on the Declaration, and they're effectively doing an act of treason. And people know the story, how Hancock signs his name, very, very large text, and everyone else who signs it, uh, you know, because this is being sent to England, uh, you know, if they lose the war and if they get arrested, they're going to be punk. So Hancock is saying, I'm going to write my name so even the king can see it without glasses. But what does the end of the declaration say? So right above Hancock's name, right above where it says signed by order and in behalf of the Congress, it refers to, this is a firm, we're doing this, and firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So they're stepping up to the plate. Uh, they're hoping for protection from divine providence, but uh, you know, ultimately, you know, they're they're stepping out on uh, on a dangerous point because it won't be until 1783 when the war is going to officially end, and that's 1776. So there is religious notions that are captured in the Declaration of Independence, and some freedom of religion, as we said, from those rights of of natural rights of life, liberty, and property. And we're going to skip ahead now. Same year, 1776, you have the important Virginia Declaration of Rights. And although Philadelphia was the largest city, Virginia was the largest state. If you include all of the slaves, even though later they won't be able to vote, by population, Virginia is the largest state. So Virginia has the first Bill of Rights, and I say Bill of Rights in quotes, because England had a Bill of Rights. But the state of Virginia adopts in 1776, and we're not yet a state or a colony that's going to become a state. So Virginia has the Declaration of Rights, and we have discussed on prior evenings, and we did the American Bill of Rights, that uh, Mason was the hero, George Mason, who wrote the, or primarily wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And there's important language in that Declaration of Rights that relate to freedom of religion. So what is the language? And I'm just going to quote one sentence. All men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. So that is the 
first time that you have for what's going to become a state, a Declaration of Rights, uh, which will then be copied in one form or another in the U.S. Bill of Rights and in some of the other state constitutions. So uh, you remember that the Bill of Rights was adopted by the first Congress, primarily Madison, but Madison borrows from this. And it's Article, I'm looking at my Roman numerals here, Article 16 of the Virginia Declaration of Rights has this protection for religion that we just read. So moving from 1776, and we've got nice links so people can review it for themselves. Now, on other nights, we've talked about the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So this is about 10 years later when we've now broken away from England, we won the war, and under the Articles of Confederation, the states are working with one another. There's a lot they're not able to do because Congress can't tax, but uh, they do pass a couple of ordinances which prove to be very important. And the Northwest Ordinance, Ed and Manny, of 1787 also recognizes freedom of religion in the territories that we win from England. So this is the Northwest Territory. This is going to be the states of future states of Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, so the Midwest area. So in the Northwest Ordinance, and I'll read it to you, no person shall ever be molested on account of his mode of worship or religious sentiments. So same idea. You're taking from the early colonies that recognize it, and you're taking it to the Virginia Bill of Rights, into the Northwest Ordinance, and then finally, and I'll stop reading some of the laws once we do the U.S. Constitution, but 1787, that's the famous summer that we've talked about multiple nights. And what does the U.S. Constitution say about freedom of religion? And it's really two things, right? The first place that you see it in the U.S. Constitution is in Article 7, towards the very end. And this was an area where there was a little bit of controversy. But what Article 7 says in the single sentence is that you cannot have religious tests. So Article 7 provides no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. So under the federal government, you cannot have a religious test, meaning that anyone can run for office, anyone can get a public job, anyone can do what they want. They can't be prohibited by the federal government because of a discrimination or test based upon religion. And remember, when we talk about the Bill of Rights, at this point, the U.S. Constitution is only going to apply to the federal government. So states can do whatever they want. And where else does this come into play in the U.S. Constitution? In the Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights, exactly, First Amendment. So the First Amendment only came about, uh, you know, Constitution's written 1787. We don't get the Bill of Rights until 1789, so two years later. So the Bill of Rights, and I'm not going to read the First Amendment to everybody, but the First Amendment, which back then started as the third article of the Third Amendment, but because Amendment 1 and 2 weren't adopted, the today First Amendment became the First Amendment because the other two fell to the wayside. But the First Amendment really has several protections, five different protections in it. You can't have a law, and remember the way it reads, that Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say states, but Congress shall make no law respecting freedom of religion or establishing the proper words. So Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then you also have other elements of the First Amendment. But that's, for today's discussion, the most important parts of the First Amendment. No law respecting establishment of religion. And Ed, what is that phrase clause or that clause? What is it called? The establishment clause, it means you can't have an established religion. Like, for example, even today, Great Britain has the Anglican Church, the Church of England, as the established church. And they actually, everybody has to pay taxes to support the Anglican Church in England. Once we broke away from England, we're not going to be paying taxes to the Anglican Church, the official yeah. church of England anymore. And what's the other phrase, the other clause that I just read? What's, what's the... Or prohibiting the, the free exercise thereof. 
Right. So that's the free exercise clause. And so the first clause, you can't have an official state religion under federal law. Second clause, you can't prohibit the exercise of freedom of religion. So that's the free exercise clause. So as we move on in the hour, we'll talk about how that relates to quarantine. So who drafted the Bill of Rights? And the quick answer, primarily Madison. And it was the first Congress. It took a couple of years for it to get ratified. That's 1791 when the Bill of Rights finally gets ratified, when you needed nine states to agree. And that's how we got the first ten amendments, which is the Bill of Rights. So what I want to do now is I want to mention that, um, you know, what about Washington? What about the founders? What did they think when it came to religion? And if you go to the website for Mount Vernon, and I travel a lot to different websites, but I like Mount Vernon when you ever want to do work about Washington, a good place to start is Mount Vernon. So on their website, uh, there's a good discussion about, you know, what did Washington intended to be a quiet guy. What did he think about religion? And the quick answer is, during the Revolutionary War, um, they were very open-minded. So if he's in one town, he would go to churches periodically. And if, if he's in a town where there's a, you know, Anglican church, and the Anglican church became Congregationalist, right, in some context. No, they, they, in the U.S., they became Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Thank you. Thank you for correcting. And he was an Anglican. He was an Anglican. George Washington. But when the Anglican Church is fighting against you in the war, which is controlled by the king, you know, what is Washington going to do? And the quick answer is that as he would travel to different places during the war with the towns, he would attend whatever services were available. So and I have a list of different church services that over his lifetime he attended, if I can find what I did with it. But, uh, you know, Washington was a good guy. So here's some examples. So during the Revolutionary War, Washington regularly attended services held also by military chaplains from local civilian congregations. And uh, let's see, he would go to churches nearby, regardless of its denomination. So he attended church services by Presbyterians, by Quakers, by Roman Catholics, by Congregationists, by Baptists, and Dutch Reformed services. So he was uh, pretty open-minded when it came to going to religious services. When we talk about Washington, folks will also remember that you know he gave the uh, Thanksgiving Day Declaration and days of Thanksgiving. So he understood the importance of being humble and and uh, respectful, especially when there's uh, an army of red coats that are coming after you. So uh, I also want to skip now back to, this is in the PowerPoint presentation on statutes and stories, to a wonderful story about a letter that Washington writes. And this is after the Bill of Rights had been written, so Madison wrote it, but it's going to take time for the different states to approve it. So we're skipping now to 1790 and just getting our chronology right. Constitution is written 1787. First Congress is 1789, and the First Congress writes the Bill of Rights, but it's going to take until 1791 for nine states to adopt it. And Rhode Island, if we remember, Rhode Island was all about religious freedom. In fact, uh, you've heard me mention that Rhode Island is referred to by some as Rogue Island. Rhode Island likes to do its own thing. It's fiercely independent. So Rhode Island did not even show up at the Constitutional Convention, and eventually, and here's a little bit of backstory. Washington goes traveling. And the idea was that you know, he's got some popularity. He's trying to celebrate how he adopted the Constitution. So as president, he goes traveling with some of his, his advisors. He does not go to Rhode Island because Rhode Island had not yet not yet approved the Constitution in Rhode Island. But then once Rhode Island in 1790 approves the Constitution and comes in as the 13th state, Washington decides to take a trip out to Rhode Island. And also he's got several objectives, and I think I mentioned this on the website. So Rhode Island is now officially part of America, so he's going to visit Rhode Island. And also he's trying to convince Rhode Island to ratify the Constitution, and there are some other states, sorry, to ratify the Bill of Rights. 
And he also wants to send the message to some of the northern states. And remember that Massachusetts, um, unlike Rhode Island, does tax. Back then, in the early days, mm-hmm. yeah, remember, the Bill of Rights only applied to states and hadn't yet been adopted. So one of the controversies for Massachusetts, and uh, Massachusetts, uh, I'm referring now to the old Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, where sometimes he did have official religions in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Yeah, they had established religions. Yeah. So getting the First Amendment approved through Massachusetts is not going to be easy. He goes on this trip, a good little tour, to try to thank Rhode Island for adopting the Constitution and to try to build support for the Bill of Rights to get it adopted, which will happen a year later in 1791. So here's where we are. We're in August of 1790. Washington is going into Newport, Rhode Island. He's visiting the big cities in Rhode Island. And all the the community, all the kids, all the families are coming out to see the president, the war hero, and different religious groups, churches, etc., and synagogues would send letters welcoming. They'd all come out to celebrate and do uh, praise for the the president. So on August 17th, he, uh, he visits uh, let's see, this is the tour, which is in Newport, one of the oldest synagogues in America. And he's not just going to the synagogue, he's traveling around the area. And uh, there's a letter that's written to him welcoming him. And uh, within a day or two, I think two days later, he writes a famous letter thanking the Toro Synagogue for inviting him. And this is the language that I'm going to read slowly, even though it's raining and you may get some noise in the back. But, but this language is repeated, and uh, it, it really strikes me. I get chills when I, when I read this. So this is the letter that Washington writes to the Toro Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, after he visited and after he received a letter from them. And this is the important language. He says, the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in the land, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit safely under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. So that's wonderful language, uh, and there's also another sentence, if I can find it, that that people may remember. And it'll take me a second to find it. But basically he's saying we're not going to give sanction to bigotry, and in this new country we're going to have freedom of religion, and the religious minorities do not have to live in fear. Uh, and, and back in this time frame, Catholics are a big religious minority. Right. So, um, so let me give you an example about Rhode Island. Yeah. Uh, in 1781, at the beginning of the year, General Rochambeau and uh, a, a small army of French soldiers landed in Newport, Rhode Island. They liaisoned with General Washington, and they both marched down to trap Cornwallis in Yorktown. But when they landed in Newport, all the French troops, it turned out that uh, the colony of Rhode Island uh, prohibited Roman Catholic services, <laughs> prohibited them. So when the French wanted to have their uh, mass the, the, the first Sunday after they landed, the state of Rhode Island uh, quickly gave them permission to hold popish Roman Catholic services. So. That was a move for uh, religious toleration. What? Yes, Manning. What? You were prohibited from having Roman Catholic services in Rhode Island until the French troops landed. Well, you know, in in the Federalist Papers, the only racist comment I've ever read in any of the Federalist Papers was um, attributed to the Papatists that were— Papists, yes. Yeah, the—, the I call them Papatists because I keep on saying Papa, you know, in Spanish. But yeah, they, yeah, they were people. Who, yeah, who, who were Roman Catholics. So, you know, hey, yeah. uh, every even the great Federalist Papers had their had their nuances sure. that were kind of hard, hard to swallow. Racist, it, 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 
but you know, uh, Adam, just to make a, a, a larger statement from my study of American history, I think one of the greatest inventions of American civilization is this idea of denomination. You don't have it in too many other places. It really came from the U.S., the idea of having all these uh, Judeo-Christian uh, denominations, you know, different types of Christian, different types of Protestants, uh, and even the Jewish uh, religion has different denominations. There's the Reform, the Conservative, the Orthodox. So and the Hittites, I think Hasidics. that is an invention of American civilization, and we should be rightly proud. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. So I finally found what I wanted to read to you earlier. This is uh, probably the most important sentence in this letter that Washington sends, and it's, it's really a beacon. It's a symbol of religious toleration in America. So in his letter he says, here it is, for happily, so he's saying thankfully, happily, it's a good thing, for happily, the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. So people support the American government, and the American government is not going to tolerate persecution under this new system that we have, our, our brand new constitution. So that's the tour, the letter to the Torah synagogue, uh, which is written in uh, 1790. And I also want to segue over, we're talking about Catholics now a little bit. So uh, what about Maryland? Because Maryland becomes the state where, where there were most, Baltimore. Where right? most where Catholics they, existed. So this was primarily a Catholic colony. So we talked about the Pilgrims and the Puritans in Massachusetts. So uh, Baltimore and Maryland is, uh, is intended in many respects to be a haven for Catholics. And we were talking about, you gave an example, uh, one of you, I think it was Ed, during the Revolutionary War, the, the French commanders and the French troops, they're not, they're not Protestants, they're primarily Catholics. So may, many, uh, say many of the Americans may not have, you know, for them, a Catholic might have been, uh, you know, this is something you read about in a book, or a Catholic is someone who's going to follow what the Pope says. So you may have in your mind notions of, uh, of the Catholics that you're, you may have been taught to discriminate, but once they're on your side, this is a war making uh, making allies together, and you see that a Catholic is not the worst thing. In fact, the Catholics, uh, they're, they're helping you out. Thank, thank God for the Catholics helping us fight the, you know, the British and uh, King George III. So I, I think once you realize that, uh, you know, put aside some of those petty differences, because at the end of the day, uh, there's, there's a lot that everyone can agree on. So uh, what's the point? The point is that Massachusetts uh, was not as tolerant, and uh, we can talk a little bit about Baltimore. And uh, Lord Baltimore, that's where, why the name Baltimore the city is named after Lord, Lord Baltimore, uh, was the, the Lord, meaning when you're in Parliament, uh, lords and the, the hierarchy of how yeah, it's in the upper house. Yeah. There you go. So Lord Baltimore who was, had money and was able to get some a charter for some land, and he was a Catholic. And I'll point out that you had, uh, to my knowledge, at least one Catholic who signed the Declaration of Independence. Uh, there may have been two, the Carroll families. But uh, let's do a little bit about Baltimore. So Lord Baltimore, this is when the early colonies are being established. And let's see, so from Baltimore. And, brother, have you guys been to to Maryland uh, lately? Yeah. All right, so Maryland. Well, is, you know, last time I was there, they were throwing me out at University of Maryland. So I, I haven't gone yeah. back. I went to a baseball game there with my son. Oh, no. No, the last time I was there, I was in traffic court. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, jeez. Maryland, old Maryland. Oh, well. So the, the time frame is 1634, when Lord Baltimore gets permission to create up his own colony, the Catholic, and uh, they were able to put through what's referred to as the Maryland Toleration Act, which provides that no person or persons shall henceforth 
be any ways troubled, molested, or discountenanced on respect to their religion or in the free exercise thereof. Does that sound familiar, the free mm-hmm. exercise thereof? Yep. So Maryland is a haven for Catholics, so that's part of the beauty of the mosaic of putting America together. And, and I want to mention while we're talking about Catholics, there are nine members of the Supreme Court, and this tells you how tolerant our country is, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, without giving names and spending too much time on it. Uh, I suspect that Washington and the founders uh, would be very pleased, right? surprised, but pleased, that uh, today the Supreme Court has three Jews on the Supreme Court. You want to take a guess what the majority, by far, the majority of religious uh, denominations on the Supreme Court is? It's Catholic. Five Catholics. Catholic, yeah, it's Catholics. And, and one Episcopalian. So, what, uh, uh, and the first time, it was universal uh, under Bush, I believe. And no, no, it was, yeah. Scalia yeah. was replaced by Gorsuch. And Gorsuch was born a Catholic, but he's now a practicing Episcopalian. So right. he is the only Protestant on the Supreme Court uh, because the majority are Catholic. So it tells you how far we've come. All right, so let, let's segue from religion over into quarantine. And I'm going to just have everyone just for a minute so you can see where it is. If you're on the Statutes and Stories website, go, go out, of, <laughs> out of the the discussion about freedom of religion and go back up into the, let's call it the blog, go into the blog, and you can go on to the, the post which talks about quarantine. So just so people can see where it is. So this was going to be from February timeframe, February 9th, when we posted on an act relative to quarantine. And what I do on this particular post is we give examples of the early quarantine laws. And some of these laws are basically as old as the colonies. So we could joke about which came first, quarantine laws or religious freedom, and the answer is they're basically the same time. And if you scroll down to the bottom of that post about the first quarant- the first federal quarantine law, I give some of the history. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how the book of Leviticus, right, uh, this is uh, where some of these ideas of quarantine come from. And uh, in Venice is some of the locations in Italy where you have the first uh, locations where we're doing quarantine in Europe. But if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see some of the links, and people can read some of these acts. And I give an example of a Massachusetts Act in 1732, which would actually, if you did not put up a sign in front of your house, a six-foot pole with a red flag on it, that someone in the house has smallpox, you could be whipped and fined. In fact, some of the fines were, were very, very high, or unaffordable fines, some of them. And I give some other uh, discussions of some of these laws in the first state or the first city. is also coincidentally in the New York area. This is East Hampton and Long Island. In 1662, that's the first smallpox quarantine. And uh, the idea, again, is that people can be whipped and they can be fined and imprisoned uh, for violating quarantine. So quarantine laws, and I give some copies of some of these laws. And the concern back then was yellow fever, cholera, and and uh, smallpox. So I, I know we've got about 10 minutes left. So I, I understand that the two of you have some strong opinions with regard to freedom of religion as it applies to quarantine. Uh-huh. Well... I just think that, you know, the, the only ones who really benefit uh, faith-wise in, during quarantine are the Zion Coptics. You guys don't even know who the Zion Coptics are. Yeah, I, I don't, I admit to you, man, yeah, I don't know. The, uh, the religion of weed. Oh, you mean cannabis? Yeah, man, come on. Jeez, you guys are slow, man. I, we just lost like thousands of listeners because of that dead time you guys allowed. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know, yeah, the really? Zion Coptics were big on uh, in the 80s. And, uh, you know, Ganja Man, Ganja was God. That was the Eucharist for them. Okay. And so I imagine they're... It was Bob Marley and the, 
from uh, Jamaica, right? Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, well, he. You know that Bob Marley was uh, raised. He grew up Jewish, and uh, really? yeah, he he had the. Well, he, he was in, old. in any event, the church and the synagogues have been dealing with uh, plagues and other things like that for centuries, uh, and it's always they, they, and they seem to have made it through. So, um, you know, I think that all these uh, shutdowns and shutdown orders, which have come from state governors, are maybe you know can be challenged under the constitution, but there comes a time when they have to let people go. And the church in particular, which when they give communion, they use these silver cups, chalices, which are known to kill all kinds of germs and have been doing that for 2,000 years. And then also in the city of New York, the mayor de Blasio chastised uh, one or two weeks ago a, a group of uh, Orthodox Jews who went to the uh, funeral of one of their leaders. So, you know, you, they, I, I wrote back to them that the Jews have been doing this for over 3,000 years, and there, here they are. So I, I think we need to, uh, the, the state governors need to relax their uh, shutdowns. I think everyone uh, has complied and, and really been very uh, voluntarily collaborated with the shutdowns to, to lower the curve or whatever, flatten the curve. And I think now it's time to uh, let people free, let them go back into their... Worship and you know, maybe taking reasonable precautions. This last Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, I attended Fellowship Church in South Miami because it was the only church that was still going. Our church, uh, Christ Journey in Coral Gables, uh, has online church, and they're actually very good about that. But I think it's time, you know, the online church production is excellent and uh, it's very good. I recommend it when you're not able to get to church. But, you know, it's time to open up, and I hope that Memorial Day weekend you'll see churches opening up all around the Miami area. And I know they're still having trouble in Chicago and throughout Illinois because the governor is being very restrictive. So I think it's time to let people freely worship, as the First Amendment says. And uh, you know, as long as they take reasonable precautions, wear masks, we had... Uh, Social distancing at our church. Uh, we were it was outdoors, so you know the outdoor transmission is more difficult. Uh, but you know we had a, a very uh, stirring sermon about you know if Moses could be picked by God to uh, do God's work, then even you can be picked by God. So I, I, I'm in favor of opening up the church. I hope more of them will do it this weekend and the synagogue. I'm going to give a note of caution, and then we don't always agree with one another. I'm, I'm just going to mm -hmm. point out that uh, to the extent churches want to open up, and synagogues for that matter, and my synagogue mm -hmm. has not yet opened up, mm -hmm. it seems to me multiple services, that way people can be spread out rather than crammed sure. into a building. And I sure. agree, doing it outside is ideal. Right, constant sanitizing, and particularly for the communities which are susceptible, so for elderly communities, for people right. who are sick, and a lot of the folks who are going to serve, to be honest, at least on my end, you have a, a larger percentage of the community that shows up for regular services are older, and that's right. for various reasons. So those are the people in particular that have to be careful. Right. And, uh, you know, from my vantage point, um, you know, for example, when people are singing, you can spread the, the bacteria, virus, etc. further, um, you know, if, if there's loud singing, if you're in confined quarters without ventilation. So, uh, you know, there's a balance to be found. And yeah, we were outdoors, uh, and the singing, we, we, it's a rock band singing up there. Uh, so, we, yeah, they were belting it out. But uh, I agree, uh, this, this virus seems to target the elderly, people 65 and over, 
and I'm 63, so I have to be careful. But then it also targets people who have comorbidities like uh, obesity. Yeah, there's there's a guy in Florida who was, uh, you know, creating, his name is Brian Hitchens. He was uh, doing Facebook pokes while he was Uber driving, talking about it being fake news and fake government hoax to control us. Well, guess what? He caught it, and he's obese, and he brought it oh, home. Yeah. Brought it home to his wife. She caught it as well, and uh, it's all over the news that Brian Hitchens of Florida, the guy who claimed fake uh, pandemic, got hit, and now he's regretting everything he he posted. Is he still alive? He's still alive, but uh, he's having a he's having a bad time with. Uh, if you have obesity, diabetes. Uh the picture the picture that I see of the news link was you know. Uh, handsome double chin guy like myself. Yep. But yeah. you're a young man still, right? But well, because of my three strokes, I, I you know, I, I quarantine. I stay home. I don't. Oh, okay. I don't go to the hardware store. Uh, you know, I'm not in my store. I only come in here. Well, so men are 55 to 60 percent of the victims for some reason. And minorities, Browns and Blacks are getting well, ob- obesity, diabetes. Heart disease, disease, Notice how no attorneys get coronavirus. I haven't heard of one attorney. No, 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 no. I don't know. If you get the virus, it doesn't mean you're going to die. Most people, I'm going to tell you guys a quick story. So a serious story, then a not-so-serious story. But, uh, you know, thankfully, Manny, this is building on what you just said about attorneys. Thankfully, attorneys, you know, at least in many cases, are able to work remotely, and I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. We're able to do Zoom depositions and uh, Zoom hearings. In fact, S- stay closer to your phone. Uh, we're not hearing you no. well. But you want to see the demeanor of the witness. I think that Zoom depositions have, are limited, but it, they, are, they can be done. But you want to see his demeanor. You want to see his sweat. So there was a recent article about a judge, and the judge warned the attorneys doing a Zoom hearing that he says, I don't want to see you in your bathroom. I don't want to see your bedroom. I need you to put on the decorum and act as if you were in court with the same respect and the same procedures that I would want. And uh, it's become an issue with people inadvertently, uh, you know, not realizing uh, what you're putting online when you do some of these Zoom meetings. Uh, so, so that's uh, with regard to just being careful when you're doing those kind of Zoom performances. But uh, also to be careful. Go ahead. Did you hear what happened during the Supreme Court hearing? The flush of the ago? toilet. <laughs> Right. This is the first time in American history where the Supreme Court allowed a live um, electronic transmission of an oral argument. Yeah, because they don't allow TV in the court. So this is a first. Oh, and while the guy was giving a presentation, someone else was on the John? Yeah, so the big question. I'm in my office and the bathroom is like not too far away. So yeah, you can hear it. Or the person giving the presentation did it. (laughs) Sitting on the John. Talking, uh, giving an oral presentation from the John, the Supreme Court. No, no, because you're on Zoom and you're, they, you can see your face. <laughs> that's uh, that's worthy of a, of a Bar Association newsletter announcement. Oh, my God. It was unclear, Manny, who flushed or where that came from, but there were enough people on that you could hear it. Yeah. The last observation I wanted to make, and uh, I'm not sure what we'll talk about next week, but um, Memorial Day, if you guys want to mention. Yeah, Memorial Day. We're, I, I plan to be at Manny's. Studio because he has a special guest, yes, congressional, ma- can, congressional candidate. Yeah, right, uh, Manny. 
Yeah, Ed only wants to come to the show when there's primetime action going on. Typical, Absolutely. Typical, Absolutely. typical attorney selects his cases. Oh, God. Yep. Yeah, Maria Elvira Salazar uh, running in the primary against Raymond Molina and Juan Fiol. Who's well, been there? Molina was there for two hours. Yeah, Molina was yep. here, and Fiol is kind of angry at me because he thinks I'm a never-Trumper, and we know that's not true. Uh, but uh, he attacked me during the campaign when I was for Ted. And so then, when is she coming to your studio? Five o'clock. She'll she'll be here at six. I, I'm sure her staffers are bringing her at six because she, after the interview, she's meeting with the Cuba Skin Republican Party for like a meeting. Okay, so I'll be there by six. Yeah, you can you can come in here and hang out and tell them how smart you are, but you can't you can't be overzealous like you were the last time you participated in an interview where. You try to dominate the conversation with Siri. Oh, don't worry. With I'm wearing my WSQF uh, polo shirt. Yeah, Cindy Powell told told me that you you spoke way too much. She didn't want to hear another attorney. She wanted okay. to hear. She wanted to hear the most handsome well, fat guy. Cindy Powell has shot to fame after coming on WSQF. Yeah, the, the the word had it in social media that her and I were dating. That's why she became so popular. Oh my God. Well, that's the, the end. last cautionary tale I'm going to give, and we're almost finished, guys. No, we are finished. It's like 8:05. You know, you guys. We're good. All right. Well, everybody, have a great night. <laughs> no, I want to hear your. I want to hear your point. Yeah, tell us your point. Okay, so the, the quick cautionary observation is that Purim, which is a Jewish celebratory holiday, occurred in the March time frame, and a lot of religious communities were meeting as the disease is getting passed around. And New York was hit horribly with, you know, the infection rates. So the Hasidic, which is the very religious communities in the Williamsburg area in Brooklyn, uh, I think some of the numbers, eight, 900 members of that community, including religious uh, you know, rabbis and senior religious leaders, were decimated. So, so some of those communities really took it on the chin. And uh, um, that's some of the controversy that came up, because they were trying to do funerals, but they weren't um, keeping as much of a distance right. as, as, as ideal. Yep, that's true. Right. But uh, you know, I think I think uh, people now realize they've got to take it seriously, and uh, there has to be a happy medium that's found. Well, I just googled the Brian Hitchens uh, gentleman the story again to see an update, and uh, his wife's in critical condition. So, so, so much yep. for so much for. <laughs> excuse me. Hydrochloroquine. Well, apparently, uh, apparently, it seems that. Uh, that there's a case in Cuba Skein, and she gave us a play-by-play of about six days or so of feeling terrible with coronavirus. She believes her son brought it from Spain. He was there for spring break, and uh, she testifies on a WhatsApp chat on our community, and she was very specific about it because she wanted you know, people to spread the news that she was cured by uh, hydrochloroquine. Yeah, and, a lot of people have said that, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know why Neil Cavuto would have you know, immediately blasted the president for even insinuating and bringing up. Yeah, Cavuto's a never-Trumper, don't worry. So, anyway, that's my final statement, but uh, uh, take the the disease seriously, but it's your your choice. And, you know, have courtesy and have manners. Um, You know, we hear horror stories about the masks not protecting us, no matter how they're designed, that the microns of the bacteria penetrate all these materials. But just show your fellow citizen the mask that you actually care about their livelihood and uh, show some consideration. I know that people like me uh, who've suffered the three strokes, I appreciate when people are around me with a mask because 
They're considerate, you know. Uh, yeah. For, but for, Manny, don't use it as an excuse to not go to church. There's online church on Sunday morning. Plenty of good service. Yeah, I think. Everybody, I, I, everybody stay safe. Take care, my friends. It's right. the end of the thank statues you. and Bye. stories show. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Adam. All right. Thank you. Viva, viva America. Stay free, my friends. I think we're going to now go to the World Health Organization's 1971 song, Blue Eyes. Take care, my friends. Stay free. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man.